Well, I'm going to do something that I don't do very often this morning. Years ago, I made myself the promise that I wasn't going to be someone who was always dipping into sports metaphors for sermon illustrations and introductions. But man, something remarkable happened last Sunday. Uh, I don't know whether you are a football fan. I don't know whether you are an NFL fan. I don't know whether you even watched the Super Bowl last week or you watched it and discovered it to be the most gigantic waste of three and a half hours of your life that you will never get back. But all of those things being said, something remarkable happened last week at the Super Bowl. And that Tom Brady became the first player in NFL history and maybe the only player who will ever in NFL history win six Super Bowl rings as the Patriots won their sixth Super Bowl in like 17 or 18 years. And honestly, I hate the Patriots and I have been open about that on Facebook for anybody who is my friend on Facebook. And, and quite honestly, I don't even like Tom Brady. I mean, it's for all the reasons that people hated Wayne Gretzky in the 80s. He's just good. I'm sure he's a nice guy and I'm sure I would enjoy getting to know him. I just don't want to because he's too good. And yet, I have to confess that Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback to ever play football in the NFL. And I'm not just saying that because the chair of our elder board, who is my boss's boss, is a super big Patriots fan and is starting to like threaten withholding my pay and things like that for all the bad things I say about the Patriots. No, like it really is. I went online this week after they won the Super Bowl and I, and I did a little Google search on what makes Tom Brady so amazing. Not just as a football player, not just as a quarterback, but as a leader. And I found there are articles online about Tom Brady's leadership and what you can learn from Tom Brady's leadership because he really is a remarkable leader of this football team. And I found this article that listed seven things that were noteworthy about Tom Brady's leadership. And the whole point of the article was no matter what kind of leader you want to be, no matter what environment you want to be a leader, you can... The more you can do the things that Tom Brady does, the better a leader you're going to become. And so it listed things like this, right? Tom Brady keeps his cool under every circumstance. Tom Brady stays confident no matter how far behind. He always believes that they can win. Tom Brady understands the competition. He knows what he's up against. Tom Brady's fully accountable for his mistakes. He takes responsibility for himself and for his team every single week. He puts in the work. He, he's the you know, hardest working guy on the team. He communicates like a pro. He takes time to rest and recuperate. And the, and the whole point of the article was, if we could learn to emulate these kinds of behaviors, these are the characteristics that make a person like Tom Brady a truly remarkable leader. And the more I read it, the more I began to ask myself the question of whether that's really true. Like within the community of faith, within what God is doing in raising up a, a church among us, raising us up into the church, is that what God would say about the kind of people, let's drop the word leader, the kind of people who are the folks who become truly influential in a community like ours? Is this what the Bible would say? Are the characteristics of 
people who really have and find and deserve to be a voice in a community of faith like ours. Because that's really the question that we're digging into over the next six weeks as we turn back to James, the the book of James that we've been studying for the last little while. We're going to pick up the book of James in James chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. And this next section, these next six weeks are about what kind of person in our community is the kind of person who has the volume of their voice turned up when it comes to influence. And what kind of person in a community of faith has the volume of the voice, you know, of their influence turned down in the community? What does it take to be a voice in a community like ours? And this is exactly where James begins the passage. He says this in James chapter 3 verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Not many of you should become teachers. He says he's using the language of teachers to talk about people who have influence in the community of faith. Because in the earliest days of the church, in the times that James is writing this letter to his church, um, the greatest amount of influence, the, the most influential people in the community were those who could teach the scriptures and explain to the church what it is that God was saying in and through The Bible, teachers in those days were revered highly. They were greatly valued. They became people of high social standing. They were revered by everyone. They were treated with respect and dignity. They were the center of every social gathering. It really was something that the early church did very, very right. As they took the teachers, those who explained the scriptures, and made them people of significance and importance in the community. I'm just kidding. Um, But here was the thing. Because in the first century, the position of being a teacher was such a significant position in the community, everyone wanted to be one. People were vying for the right to be recognized as a teacher in the community. And and what would end up happening in communities and across communities was that these rivalries would break out. That what would happen is people would enter into competition with each other. That um, divisions would actually settle into churches. As people would say, well, I like Mike's teaching, so I follow Mike. And somebody else would say, well, I like Jeff's teaching, so I follow Jeff. And somebody else says, well, I like, you know, Minimus teaching or Rick's teaching or Fowler's teaching or Carrie's teaching or Annie's teaching. I, I like that. So, and the church would kind of divide itself up according to who people's favorite teachers were. And there, there came to be this really ugly spirit in the community as people did what we always do, and that is jockey for position to be a voice of influence in the community. And the, the role of teacher at that time was the role that would attract two different kinds of people. On the one hand, it would attract people who were called by God to be the ones who explain scripture to the community, the ones who had been gifted by God, who would aspire or be gravitate towards these roles of teaching. But on the other hand, there was a whole other community of people who um, had ulterior motives, who liked the power or the influence, who liked to be the center of attention, the popularity, who liked the significance, who liked everybody looking at them and listening to them. 
And the church was constantly faced with the challenge of who are the people who ought to be given voices of influence in the community. And as you read through the New Testament, especially towards the back end, there is a tremendous amount of attention paid to who are the kinds of people who should be a voice. And James begins by saying this, look, I'll say this about teachers, not many of you should do it. Now, that's quite an incredible thing for the person who does the most teaching around here to say. Sort of a job protector kind of a verse. I kind of like it a little. No, no, let me say this about Southridge Land. James says, not many of you should be teachers. And right now, not many of us are teachers. I do most of the teaching. If you've been around, Jeff Lockyer, our lead pastor, teaches about once a month. Periodically, we have other voices, our location pastors or other ministry leaders who teach periodically. But when James says, not many of you should, the flip side, the coin that I want to turn over is I say, some of you should, but aren't right now. I don't think it's good for there to be as few voices in our community as there are right now. I don't think it's good for my voice to fill as much of the space as it does in our community. I think we need other voices. I think we need women's voices teaching. I think more of them. I think we need younger people's voices teaching. I think we need more diverse voices teaching. And when James says not many of you should, he means but some of you should. And there are some people in our community who feel in your spirit that God may be inviting you to become someone who teaches the scriptures. And if that's you, if you carry that sense in your spirit, let me just say, I would love to be someone who walks with you to help you discern that calling, whether God is calling you into teaching, and then help you figure out what to do with that. But James, his point in saying, not many of you should, is to say there is discernment that needs to be exercised in terms of who becomes an influential voice and who doesn't. Because, he says right at the end of the verse, you just need to know that the more influence you have in the community, the more you will be subjected to judgment. He says, those who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, it's, it's hard to know exactly what he means by more strictly because it could mean a few different things. What it could mean is you just need to know that the greater, the more we turn up the volume on your voice, the more influence you have, the more intense will be the scrutiny that people put you and your life and your words under. And I can tell you that that's true. The more influence you have in the community, maybe what he means is the more severe will be the judgment, the punishment for times when you screw up that leadership or when you, when you, you misuse it in the community. It's possible that what he means is that the more influence you have in the community, the more danger you are in to be subject to judgment just because of the influence that you have. The stakes are higher the more influence you have, which means the consequences are greater. Because truth be told, if you're a person who has voice in the community, the more influence you have in the lives of other people, the greater your opportunity to mess it up. Right? The book of Hebrews in chapter 13 says that, you know, people who are, are pastors who, who are, you know, paid to do this, 
they are responsible for other people's souls. But that's true of just the more influence you have, the more you are responsible for the people that you influence. And when you stand up and say, I think God wants us to believe this, whether you're right or wrong, it's not just about you, it's about all the people who are going to follow you in that. When you say, I think God wants our community to go in this direction, it's not just about you, it's about all the people who are going to follow you down that path. When you say the Bible teaches this, but then you leave, you Bible teaches X and you live Y, it's not just your hypocrisy, it's the hypocrisy of the whole community that can lead to disillusionment in, in the neighborhood. Like, the stakes are high because the risk is real that we're going to mess it up. In fact, it's a certainty that we're going to mess it up. This is, listen to what James says in, in verse 2. He says, we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. Now, there's a little word there that doesn't appear in the English language that exists in the Greek. And the little word means for, which is to say what I'm about to say explains what I just said. And, and so what the verse means is that James says not many people should be teachers because they're going to be subjected to a stricter, greater scrutiny and a severer judgment because of their influence. But he says the reason is that we all screw up in the things that we say. He says, we all stumble in many ways. We mess up all the time and we mess up in every single way, but the easiest and most frequent way that we mess up, and I think this is true, is with our words, right? It's with our words. I've often joked with people, sometimes in the church, people talk about having a life verse, like a, a verse that is sort of your mantra. It, it's your motto. It's the slogan under which you live your life. And I, I'm not necessarily a proponent of life verses, but I've often joked with people that if I had a life verse, it would be Proverbs 10, 19, which says, where words are many, sin is not absent. <laughs> That's the banner under which I live my life as a, as a person who has always used a lot of words that has always been true but in the last 21 half and a half years since I've been doing this I have multiplied the number of words that I use on a weekly basis I not only do I speak more frequently and use more words I speak more publicly and I'm heard by more people which means I have multiplied the amount of sin that I have propagated in my life through the way that I speak. And this is really what James is getting at. The reason, not, the reason we should be cautious about the amount of influence we desire in the community, the more influence you have, the, the severer the judgment will be when you inevitably mess up with your words because we all do it. We all do it. Think about how easy it is to say words that just aren't true. Right? To advance your agenda, to enhance your image, to get yourself out of trouble. The ease with which lies tumble out of our mouth. Think about the ease with which we boast and we brag. We either exaggerate our own accomplishments or we flatter each other by exaggerating each other's accomplishments. And all in the service of our ego. 
Think about the ease with which we delight in sharing a morsel of gossip. The ease with which we stab each other in the back with our words by slandering each other you know, behind each other's backs. Think about the ease with which we grumble and complain about the stuff that we hate. Think about the ease with which anger erupts out of our mouth with violent speech. Think about the ways that we speak inappropriately, whether about race or sexuality or anything else, all the inappropriate ways that we talk. Think about how easy it is for us to mess up with the way that we speak. We do it frequently and we do it in every single way. I mean, no matter, no wonder James says that the person who can keep a tight rein on their mouth is basically perfect, right? He says, if you can control your tongue, you can do anything. And he doesn't mean perfect, by the way. He just means complete and mature. He says the person who can keep control of their words, the person who never sins by what they say, is somebody who has basically arrived at what it means to live as a follower of Jesus. We talk about being a fully devoted follower of Jesus. James says, never mind. If you can control your tongue all the time, you're a fully developed follower of Jesus. You're the poster child. You're the one everybody should be following. You are clearly loving God with every you have and loving everybody else as much as you love yourself because we sin so easily with our words right we do it because words are easy words are cheap they flow without us even thinking about it which is actually the problem most of the time it's why James says we should be slow to speak instead of quick to speak because our our mouth runs ahead of our brain and it runs ahead of our heart We sin with our words because we don't always say exactly what we mean or we don't always articulate the way we want to say things and therefore our impact is different than our intent and we end up hurting each other by the way that we speak and often by the way in our joking. We sin with our words because we live in an ecosystem of words. I think our culture uses more words than any other culture in human history. Between the, you know, the phones we carry around in our pockets, whether we're talking or texting or on social media, sending an email, making comments on the internet, we live in a culture of words. And where words are many, sin is not absent. James says, listen. We should be careful about the amount of influence we seek. We should be careful about the amount of influence we give each other because we are all too prone to mess up and to sin with the way that we speak. Now, James is speaking generally, but I think he has something very particular in mind. If you jump down to verse 9, we're going to look at James 3, 3 to 8 next Sunday. To jump down to verse 9, this is what James says. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. James is, when he thinks about the ways that we sin with our mouths in what we speak, The thing that distresses him the most is what he calls double talk. 
is the ways that we talk out of both sides of our mouths. On the one hand, praising God, and on the other hand, cursing people. When James talks about praising God, he's talking about the ways that we talk about God, the way that we talk so beautifully and adoringly and lovingly about God when we're, for example, in environments like this. Right When we're singing songs about how much we love God and how beautiful God is and how great God is in our lives and when we're praying prayers and thanking God for how loving he is and praying for an experience of more of God's love and we just, we, whether we're reading the scriptures or listening to sermons or listening to podcasts or listening to worship music in the car or having a quiet time at home, like we, we use all of this beautiful language about God. Now James is writing to a, a community of primarily Jewish Christians who would have grown up praying a prayer called the Amidah. It was also called the 18 blessings. And they would have prayed this prayer three times a day. And this prayer that they would have recited had, guess how many? 18 blessings. 18 times the prayer said, blessed are you, O Lord, because... Blessed are you, O Lord, because you created the world. Blessed are you, O Lord, because you give us food. Blessed are you, O Lord, because you blah, 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 because you rescue us, whatever. Blessed are you, O Lord. 18 times, they prayed it three times a day. They prayed it four times on the Sabbath because they would also pray it when they went to synagogue. They prayed five times on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement when God forgave all of Israel for all of their sin from the previous year. They prayed this prayer all the time. I, I did rough math in my head. They prayed this prayer somewhere in the ballpark of 1,200 times a year and 18 blessings every single time. Just through this prayer alone, they praised God in the, on the order of 20 or 22,000 times a year just with this prayer. And James says, how is it conceivable that the same mouth that praises God 20 or 22,000 times a year can turn around and use that same mouth to rip your neighbor a new one for the way they messed up whatever it was? Like, how is this possible? That we use our mouths to sing, sing and say these beautiful words to God and then we turn around and we have these angry, violent outbursts at each other or we grumble and complain about all the things that we hate or we slander behind each other's backs or gossip or we, you know, like we do all of these terrible things to each other with the way that we speak. And all the while, praising God. He, he's talking in effect about the difference between the ways that we talk on Sunday when we're here together and all the ways that we talk for all of the rest of the week. Right, like when we're here, we're pleasant and kind and polite and respectful and it's so nice to see you again and we come into the, uh, a room like this one and we sing praise to God and we pray these beautiful prayers about his love and then we get in the car and it's like, did you see what she was wearing? Did you see who they were with? Did you hear what they did at work this week? Did you blah, 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 I think that person's an idiot and on and on and on it goes. James says it's preposterous that we use the same mouth. In fact, it's illogical and incomprehensible that we would praise God and then, this is the gross part, we would curse people who are made in God's image. James says that just doesn't even make any sense. Right? One of the beautiful things about the Bible, it was revolutionary 
uh, when it was written is that in ancient cultures, it was widely accepted that kings and queens, people who were royalty, they were said to have been created in the image of God. They were godlike in their character. And so royalty, people who were kings and queens and so on, they were worthy of dignity and respect and honor and love in the highest order because of their godlike nature. The, the revolutionary thing, one of the revolutionary things about the Bible, one of the many, was that the Bible comes along and says, no, 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 that's not true, that kings and queens and those who are royalty, that they're created in the image of God. You know what is true? Every single human being that has ever walked the face of the planet is created in the image of God. Every single human being is godlike in their very essence, in their being. They are a living, breathing manifestation of the presence of God in your life. You have never looked in the eyes of a human being and not seen something of what God is like. Human beings are a, a revelation of the divine. And James says, I don't understand how you can praise God and then curse the people who are made in his image. One of the rabbis uh, said, Anyone who insults the face of a human being, insults the face of a king or queen, and treats the face of God with disgust. Whenever you speak disrespectfully of another human being, you are, you are spitting, I almost said literally, it's not true. You are spitting metaphorically in the face of God. Right? Like imagine this. I come up to you and I adore you. I bump into you one day and I, I just can't help myself. I'm just bubbling over. I'm telling you how much I love you, telling you how amazing you are. I'm telling you how much, a, what of a difference you've made in your life, what, how thankful I am for your presence. I just can't say enough about how highly I think of you and how much I respect you and how much I absolutely adore everything about you. Now imagine you have kids and my follow-up sentence is, but your kids, they're disgusting. They, they're revolting. I hate them. Honestly, I hate them. I'd love to smack them in the head. I honestly, I can't even stand to look at them. They are gross and ignorant and honestly, they're undisciplined and I just don't even want to be around. What would, what would change inside of you? You would look at me and you would say, I don't believe a word you said about me because you cannot love me and speak about my kids the way that you just did. That is impossible. It's imponderable. It's incomprehensible. It's illogical. And it's impossible. And it's just as impossible that we genuinely praise and love God and then turn around and speak all manner of disgusting disrespect to each other. Because what James says is what we learn in that moments of doublespeak is we learn something about what's going on in our heart. He says in, in verse 11, can a fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives and a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. James says that the, the problem is not with our mouth. The problem goes deeper than that. Our words are just a symptom of something that's lying underneath. My, my dad a few years ago, 
went for a walk with his wife, Betty. They made it to the end of the street. It was about 200 meters. And all of a sudden, my dad was out of breath and his face was all red and he was feeling pain in his chest and he had to sit down on the, on the transformer at the end of the street. And he sat there for a second and he said to Betty, he said, I'm having a hard time breathing right now. My wife is a respiratory therapist. Breathing is what she does. Guess what? Breathing was not my dad's problem. It went deeper than that. A few weeks later, my dad had a quintuple bypass surgery because the breathing issues and the chest pain and the sweating and the the redness in the face, all of those were just symptoms of a much deeper problem, one one that came from his heart. It's exactly what James says. When, when you're the kind of person, when I'm the kind of person who can speak words of praise and love for God and then disrespect and dishonor the people created in God's image, I'm learning something about my heart. He says, can fresh water and salt water come from the same spring? Of course it can't. If you plant a fig tree, we're the Niagara region. If you plant grapevines, he even uses that as an example. If you plant Chardonnay grapes. I don't even know if that's a varietal of grape or just the name of a wine. You plant grapevines. What are the odds that you plant and nurture and, and, and water and, and fertilize these grapevines and what you end up picking at the end of the season are figs? None. You know why, James says? Because what is true at the source is what gets manifested in the fruit. Whatever's in the root comes out in the fruit. That's the whole thing. That's the whole thing. Whatever is at the source, that's what emerges out into the open. James says, the way that we ought to gauge who ought to have and be voices of influence in our lives and our communities is we should listen to the way that people speak because the way we speak tells the absolute truth about the reality of what's going on in our heart. My words and your words are an absolutely accurate spiritual barometer of what's happening in our hearts. And so when we're the kind of people who can praise God and then disrespect and dishonor the people who've been created in God's image with grumbling and complaining and slander and gossip and outbursts of anger and, um, you know, whatever, insult, belittling, marginalizing, whatever, all, whatever we do with our, our mouth, the verbal violence of sarcasm, all of those things, what we are, we are manifesting the truth about what's in our heart and saying, All of that stuff about God, that wasn't real at the deepest level. Conversely, if what is real in our hearts is that our hearts are filled with the love of God, that we love God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength, then to the degree that we're willing to yield to that love, what will come out of our mouth is love for everybody that God brings across our path. Always, only, ever love in our words. To all people, regardless of their race, regardless of their gender, regardless of their age, regardless of their socioeconomic background, regardless of their sexual orientation, regardless of their religious background, regardless of their attitude towards us. The heart, this is James's point, the heart that is filled with love for God will always only ever manifest love in the words that it speaks. 
So what does it take to be a person of influence in the community? What kind of people should we allow to have influence in our lives? What kind of people do we need to become if we're going to be influential in other people's lives? The kind of heart that is so filled with love that love is always, only, ever what spills out of our mouths to everybody, always. Let's pray that those are the kinds of people that Jesus makes us to be. Heavenly Father, I was just imagining and praying this week about what kind of community we would be, about the ways in which your life would flow through us, the ways in which we would radiate your presence in the world if we gave into our love for you. And among all of us, our words were always, only, ever filled with love for all people everywhere. That's who you are. That's what it means to be full, mature, complete, a fully devoted and fully developed follower of you. So would you fill us with your life and love until it is the only thing that emerges through our words. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.